Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. There is an old African-American spiritual entitled, Go Down Moses, that tells the Exodus story. The lyrics are set to a minor key tune that captures the mood of what it must have felt like for the people of God to be enslaved by the Egyptians. The song wasn't written ages ago, though. It was written in America during the period of slavery before the Civil War. Many enslaved Christians found a close connection with the Israelites. Uh, this story, the book of Exodus, helped them endure the suffering they experienced and provided hope that one day they might also be set free, not to live as forced servants of any man, but as servants of God. Here's how the song begins. When Israel was in Egypt land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. What we have found in the opening chapters of this great book is a patient telling of the story, setting the scene for the greatest story of redemption found in the Old Testament. Israel was in Egypt, like the song said, and were being brutally oppressed by multiple rulers when finally they cry out to the Lord for their deliverance. God heard their cry. God remembered his promises. God saw their suffering and God knew his people intimately. More so, God had already chosen a man named Moses to go down way into Egypt land and to communicate to the people and to Pharaoh all that God had said. That's where we left off last week and where we now arrive. But before we read our text, I want to make this disclaimer, everybody, that this chapter is not cheerful, but it is important. It contains important lessons for us as it records the reactions of Pharaoh, of the Israelites, and even Moses, all in a negative light. So rather than submitting to the Lord, Pharaoh dismisses him. Rather than calling upon the Lord, uh, the people of God look elsewhere for their rescue. And rather than articulating trust in Yahweh, even Moses blames God for the state of his people. Suffering has a way of clarifying things. Sorrows seem to expose where our truest hopes lie. So the question I think our text asks each of us is how will I respond when difficult circumstances arise? How will I respond when difficult circumstances arise? So as a new chapter begins, last week's vivid scene of faith-filled worship has dissolved into a dull picture of unbelief. With the unfolding of one single conversation with Pharaoh, things go from bad to worse, both, both for Moses and for the entire nation of Israel. Even when he does the right thing, it doesn't prohibit them from experiencing suffering and hardship and continued persecution, regardless of what Christian television may tell us. 
The three scenes of this chapter show people first rejecting the authority of God. We'll see that with Pharaoh, verses 1 through 14. Second, turning away from God, verses 15 to 21. And finally, questioning the sovereignty of God, verses 22 and 23. What I hope to do is along the way for us us to discover how we might rightly respond when difficult circumstances knock on our door. Would you please stand with me once more for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall on us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least, so that the people were scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. And were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to him, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. 
Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Would you be seated? We're far cry from Exodus 4 now, aren't we? The first response we discover is Pharaoh rejecting God's authority. Verse 1 seems to be the conversation that we've been waiting for. Finally, here it is, Moses versus Pharaoh. He stands before the king of Egypt to deliver the word of God and to deliver the children of Israel. As we remember in Exodus 3.18, we were there a few weeks ago, God had carefully instructed Moses who to take, what to say, and what to ask as he approached the throne of the Egyptian king. However, we find Moses took the wrong people. Moses said the wrong things and asked the wrong question as he begins this conversation. He took the wrong people because Moses was commanded to take the elders of Israel with him to the king. Instead, he only took his brother Aaron. We're not sure why the elders who were uh, just last week so happy to receive the good news that God was going to rescue them, why they did not accompany him, but their uh, absence, their silence in this text is incredibly loud. Second, Moses said the wrong things. He was told exactly what to say to Pharaoh. Exodus 3.18, let me read it. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But rather than echoing God's word, Moses seems to be editing God's word. There's a small change from Hebrews, from, from, he was supposed to say the word Hebrews, instead he uses Israel. Now if that seems like a minor thing to you, a small thing, anytime we go to edit the words of God, it is a massive thing. He also never mentions that God had met with his people. He just completely forgets that. So he said the wrong thing. Third, he asked the wrong question. He was instructed specifically to ask for three days leave into the wilderness that they might sacrifice to the Lord. Instead, Moses rolls in on his donkey. Remember, that's what he's riding on. He says, there's a new sheriff in town. I declare this Independence Day. Let my people go. Well, that wasn't where he was meant to begin, was it? So Moses took the wrong people. He said the wrong things, and he asked the wrong question. And so here we find this stuttering former prince of Egypt turned murderer, turned fugitive, turned vagabond, who has shown up with his aging brother. And on the first play of the game, launches the ball down the field. He goes for immediate gratification, calling for the king to release the entire kingdom of his slave laborers. Pharaoh simply replies, who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I don't even know the Lord. 
I imagine Pharaoh with this taunting smirk across his face as he sits on his throne surrounded by his royal court. You can hear the arrogance in his reply. Who is the Lord? Now, Pharaoh's question doesn't mean he had never heard the name Yahweh before. This is a full-on rejection of who Yahweh is. This is dismissive of who God is, implying if he'd even heard Yahweh, he doesn't care what he had spoken. In a way, the, the remainder of the Exodus account is the answer to Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh? That's the central controlling question of the whole book of Exodus. As the Lord makes himself known to his people, makes himself known to Egypt, and to us today, he continues to make himself known through his word. Pharaoh's answer to Moses in verse 2 is a firm no. Even closer to the original expression, it's like no, never. Moses the prophet stands there stunned. He communicated the message. What's wrong? And from there, Moses just freestyles with more words God never gave him to say. Saying if Pharaoh doesn't let him go, these implications will happen. Pestilence will come. Sword will come. Plagues, disease, enemies of war. Moses demands what God had never commanded. So what's so surprising is Pharaoh doesn't just strike these brothers down on the spot. He allows them to live. He just dismisses them from his presence back to their burdens. He even then blames Moses for making the people take a break from their labors. So in return for this action, he's going to place on the people a heavier burden than before. The result of this conversation Moses has with Pharaoh has a completely different outcome than he anticipated. Instead of allowing them to pass into the wilderness to worship, the labor demands on the people went from unbearable to untenable. The Egyptian overlords were commanded to tell the Hebrew foremen that were responsible for the slave population to maintain this quota of brick-making they had to com complete their daily task, but now with no straw. Um, there's a, this section is, is incredibly remarkable. Um, it's historically accurate, which is no surprise to us who believe God's word. In the, the way that it tells of Egyptian slave labor, both in its organization and in its techniques, there's a famous painting from the tomb of Rechmeyer that shows slaves making bricks around this time. There's even historical documentation of of slaves going to pharaohs, other pharaohs, and asking for leave to go and worship their gods. And in those cases, it's granted. Bricks without straw, or as my email said last night, bricks without straws. You've done it too. <laughs> brick making today is done by chemical com compounds that hold bricks together in these perfect rectangular shapes, but the bricks in ancient Egypt were made with the mud of the Nile, and the compound that held them were chaff and chopped up little bits of straw that over time would release its own chemical compound to hold everything together. So with no straw intact, the people of God are forced to then go and find their own straw. They are scattered, but not to go worship. They are scattered to go work even harder. Pharaoh, don't miss this, is, is, is making this decree to form a wedge between Moses and the people he's been called to lead. 
Pharaoh knows what he's doing here. What we see in the response of Pharaoh is, it's really just the first picture in an entire photo album. He will continue to harden his heart against God. God will continue to harden Pharaoh's heart as well. Notice even the arrogance. Thus says the Lord. Notice how he replies. Thus says Pharaoh. All of what we'll see unfold with the ten plagues can be traced back to this reality. Pharaoh would not submit to the authority of God. We are right to look at Pharaoh in the negative light. We're also right to acknowledge that we are more like Pharaoh than we care to admit. We also are born claiming the throne of our own lives. From birth saying, who is the Lord? Throughout our youth, we feel the resistance of submitting to God's authority. Even in our older years, we have to be constantly reminded that we are not the God of our lives. But the Lord sits on the throne. Whatever stage of life you find yourself in, know that you will not outgrow your need to be reminded of who God is, of his sovereignty over your life, and that we are not the God of our lives, but he is. Every time we sin is a little proof that we still say, who is the Lord? So let this text call us as God's people to submit to his authority in every area of our lives, leaving no room still to say, who is the Lord? So let us not reject, but submit to the authority of God. In the second section, we see the children of Israel turning away from God, verses 15 to 21. After hearing the verdict of bricks made without straw, the people are oppressed so hard they could not stand, as the song said. In this scene, the leaders of Israel go around Moses, straight to the throne of Pharaoh himself. Note, God did not instruct them to do this. They did this on their own. Now, there are two aspects of this conversation that are worth pointing out. First, note who they are crying out to. They cry out to Pharaoh for mercy. It wasn't that long ago. In chapter 2, verse 23, we saw the people of God crying out to him for mercy on their situation. Now, they cry out to Pharaoh instead of the great I am. In doing so, they fail to recognize God's power, God's authority, God's sovereignty over their lives and even over their suffering. Well, you remember how one of the main themes of Exodus is God delivering his people so that they might worship and serve him only? Well, in this conversation, the people of Israel identify themselves not as the servants of God, but as the servants of Pharaoh three different times. They are pledging their allegiance, their loyalty to this serpent slithering crown. But you see, the ear of Pharaoh is nothing like the ear of God. Pharaoh will not hear their cry. Pharaoh will not remember them. He does not see their suffering. He does not care about them at all. The meeting is adjourned as Pharaoh accuses them of being lazy, telling them, get back to work. So they cry out to Pharaoh for mercy. The second aspect to note is how the Israelites attacked their spiritual leaders. After they met with Pharaoh and received this bad news, they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out of this royal meeting. Uh, the way that this is rendered in the ESV is correct, 
But another way to translate these verses is to make the foreman the subject of the verb waiting. So it's not Moses and Aaron who were waiting. It was the foreman of Israel waiting like a boy waits under the bleachers on Friday night in the town I grew up. Maybe that still happens. As a matter of fact, the word met can also be translated attacked, which is exactly what the foremen do. They attack Moses and Aaron, blaming them for the reason their lives are now so difficult. Moses, you told us things would be different. You said God was going to deliver us. You made that staff turn into a serpent. You put your hand in your coat and pulled it out and it was healed after giving leprosy. You took water from the Nile and poured it onto the dirt and it became blood. You told us God would deliver us and now look at all our suffering. Moses, this is worse than before. You have tricked us. This is not the first time that they've questioned or attacked Moses' leadership. Remember the Hebrew who did that right after Moses murdered the Egyptian? And nor will it be the last. We'll see this happen again and again. And here we see it's not only the Egyptians that must come to know who the Lord is. It's also the people of God. His own people must learn of him as well. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that these things happened to them, the people of Israel, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So what instruction can we learn from the negative example of the Israelites here? Rather than turning from the Lord, we're called to turn to the Lord. When your sorrows outnumber your smiles, turn to the Lord. When your pain seems louder than God's promises, turn to God. If the fire in your heart has grown cold, return to the Lord. When your hope is shaken, when the thorn remains, when you have questions without answers, turn to the Lord again and again and again, calling on Him, praying to Him. Keep spreading your burdens before him, asking for him to change the things, the brokenness that you see in your life and in this world, and keep trusting. Psalm chapter 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be moved. God sees you. God remembers you. God hears you. God knows you. So in every sorrow and sickness and in sin, Call upon the Lord. Turn, not from the Lord, but to him. And the final scene of this chapter is simply a prayer in which we find Moses questioning the sovereignty of God. As Moses calls upon the Lord, let's note his action is better than that of his brothers. In his pain, in his frustration, in his doubt, he lifts his eyes to the Lord from where his help comes. He runs to the presence of God. Moses does well to turn to the Lord. He does not do so well once he has turned to him. There are a few things in Moses' address that we should note. First, in verse 22, he questions the goodness of God. In no uncertain terms, Moses blames God for how Pharaoh has rejected his message. He blames God for the new unbearable working conditions. He blames God for how the people are now blaming him for what's happened. Ultimately, he blames God for the evil being done against his people. Notice in that verse, he also questions God's plan. 
Moses asked, why did you, why did you send me? And in his tone, he has this kind of, I told you so. I told you I wasn't the guy for the job. I told you this wouldn't go well. He's lost all confidence that he seemed to have heard had earlier. Yet he'd forgotten that God could also say, I told you so. It was in Exodus 3.19, the Lord had already told Moses that as he delivers the words to Pharaoh, he would not listen. He would not let the people go. That it would take a mighty act of God's hand. But this is worse than he'd anticipated. What about the burning bush? What about the signs? What about the promises? Moses had questions without answers. And so finally, he questions God's promises in verse 23. That's what he's doing. He's questioning God's very word. The Old Testament scripture is shot through with God's people calling on him, asking questions, serious questions. God welcomes your most impassioned questions with your doubt, your insecurities, your wanderings. He welcomes those. We see that happen throughout the Psalms. We've seen it again and again already just in 30 chapters in. We see this in the life of Jeremiah and Isaiah. We see this from Christ from the cross. However, the last words of Exodus 5 are nowhere near the last of chapter 4. There they ended worshiping the Lord, full of faith and joy, the people gladly receiving the word, embracing the messenger. Here the word of God is abandoned, the messenger forsaken, and even the messenger himself expressing doubt, questioning God with serious language. I think these are some of the heaviest words in the book of Exodus, this last verse. You have not delivered your people at all. God, you said you would do it. And here we are, worse than before. As we turn to the next few chapters, let us not forget that Moses also needed a redeemer. Uh, This man whose life was marked with Magnificent miracles was also a son of Adam, born into sin in need of a savior. So the Lord would redeem his people, and the Lord would redeem Moses as well. Next week, the passage is just chock full of gospel truth. But we're not there yet. We've got to sit here. But this isn't the whole story. This week, I was just thinking a lot about Moses and um, how often my life resembles his in doubts and in questions. And uh, I turned to Psalm 90 just to hear a different kind of tone from Moses. I would encourage you to read it uh, sometime later today. As I thought about this prayer of Moses in Exodus 4, I was so helped by Psalm 90. (laughs) Do you know what the superscript says? The superscript is those little words that we just move right past. Those words are inspired. Now, now, the words above the chapter are not. Those are just, we, we made those up. But the little words, God wrote those. And there it says, Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. 
What? Moses, the man of God. That's how scripture speaks of this guy. We see railing against the Lord in prayer. But God wasn't done with Moses. He would soon teach him to pray the prayer of Psalm 90, verses 13 and 16. This is what he should have said. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. The Lord's going to answer that prayer in full. He's going to blow Moses' expectation, redeeming his people. We hear the whisper of promise of that next week. But today, what do we learn from the witness of Moses in chapter 5? What does his life point to? That God is our Redeemer. That we can trust him. We can put our full faith in God's word and God's ways. Even when it seems that darkness is knocking down our door. What was meant for evil God has meant for good. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together. For those who are called according to his purpose. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Before we conclude, this is a heavy text. And part of the heaviness comes from looking at both slavery and then also seeing the presence of sin. And one of the uses of the Exodus story is to show us the spiritual reality of our lives under sin by the physical slavery that God's people endured under the oppression of Egypt. So while we might live as free people, many actually live as slaves. Slaves to lust, slaves to pride, slaves to greed, slaves to hatred, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That is a sobering verse. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, Phil Riken, who is the president of Wheaton College, I think so helpfully said it like this. In the same way the Israelites had to take orders from Pharaoh, we have a fiendish slave driver who tries to get us to make bricks without straw. Sin is the harshest taskmaster. It always demands more and more from us while giving us less and less in return. Satan never loosens his grip. He's always busy tightening the chains of our captivity. It is always more bricks and less straw. For it is the very nature of sin to seek to control the sinner's whole life. So to all of us who are bound in sin, are you tired of living for this harsh taskmaster? Are you exhausted from making bricks without straw? Are you tired of the control of sin in your life? Be free today. Be redeemed today. Submit to the authority of God's word. Turn to him in faith, repenting of your sin. And trust in Jesus Christ 
as your redeemer. The only one who can set you free from sin's vicious hold on your life. What we ultimately find in Exodus 5 is that the prophet sent with the word of God and commissioned to deliver the people of God would not be the one with the power to save them. The great act of redemption in the Old Testament would be performed by God himself who would go down to Egypt land and let his people go. Though Pharaoh may momentarily reject the authority of God, claims he didn't even know him, it would not be long before he knew exactly who Yahweh was. Though the children of Israel turn away from their heavenly father again and again, he would never turn away from them. Rather, he would save them with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. And though Moses and our forefathers and we today question the sovereignty of God, one day we will stand on the other side of this life. What we now know in part, we will then know in full. What we see in part, we will then see in full. And on that day, I believe the calm will be the better for each of these storms that we endure. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that even this heavy text would do a strong work in our hearts as your people. Give us the humility not just to see these people of old and become irritated with them, thinking how in the world could they live like this, but to see your patient, slow to anger and rich in love, kindness extended to us in Christ. Let us be a people who submit to your authority and to your word. Let us be a people who turn to you, not away from you, in the midst of suffering. And let us be a people who joyfully stand under your sovereign control, trusting in who you are and what you've said, building our lives upon your word and your promises. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.